Good morning. Please be seated. In the case of Victor Samaniego against Her Majesty the Queen, for the appellant, Victor Samaniego, Chris Rudnicki, and Karen Laopo-Ong, for the intervener, Criminal Lawyers Association of Ontario, Louis P. Stresas and Michelle Bidolf, for the respondent, Her Majesty the Queen, Craig Harper and Jacob Mills. Mr. Rudnicki. Rudnicki, sorry. Thank you, Chief Justice, and good morning, uh, Chief Justice and Justices. When can the trial management power justifiably be exercised to exclude relevant and material defense evidence? That is the central question on this appeal. And it is a question this court has not yet answered. We say this appeal presents that opportunity. Trial judges need to know the limits of their case management power, and appellate courts need to know when they are entitled to intervene in what is framed as a trial management decision. On Mr. Samaniego's behalf, we say that full answer and defense cannot be sacrificed on the altar of expediency. We agree with Justice Pachaco that the trial management power is constrained by the rules of admissibility and the law of evidence. Yes, now, uh, here's a key point that I want you to bear in mind, at least from my perspective in your submissions. The assumption embedded in this, which arises from what Justice Pachaco says, is that this evidence was excluded by virtue of the trial management authority and that the exercise of that authority was not in accordance with the rules of evidence. The, another perspective is that the, applying the rules of evidence properly, this evidence was not admitted, and therefore the judge did not have to rely upon the trial management power. Now, I know it wasn't presented that way, and the only reason I interrupt you at the beginning is because I think that's an alternative way of examining the issues here. Thank you, Justice Rowe. And I'll note as well that the trial judge did not, um, for the most part, uh, identify the locus of her exclusionary power in the trial management authority. She simply said that these questions that were being asked trial, by, by trial counsel were not relevant, they were speculative, uh, or they were precluded um, by the preliminary inquiry judge's hearsay ruling. Um, and so that was the, the appeal below was litigated on the basis of her interventions in uh, in the uh, in the cross examination, and so was sort of um, framed as a question of trial of trial fairness, of reasonable apprehension of bias. Um, but uh, after uh, the court heard submissions from the self-represented inmate, they appointed Mr. Perry uh, on a 684 appointment and asked for submissions on this evidentiary issue, which is fundamentally the point at which Justice Pachaco departs uh, from the majority. Um, so the point is well taken, Justice Rowe, and, and uh, we agree that these uh, questions are best framed as questions of evidentiary questions. Uh, on, on, by way of outline, Ms. Lapohung and I propose to make three submissions on Mr. Semenyego's behalf today. Uh, first, I will make submissions on why trial management concerns have no place in the analysis of whether a particular item of evidence is relevant, material, or subject to an exclusionary rule, allowing for the possibility that trial management concerns might be raised in the, the 
the residual discretion, the balancing that happens between probative value and prejudicial effect. Second, I will argue that the majority at the Court of Appeal failed to remain faithful to this framework, and as a result, erred in finding that the trial judge was entitled to keep relevant and material defense evidence from the jury. And third and finally, Ms. Lau Po Hung will respond to the Crown's jurisdictional argument. Uh, but at bottom, we say that when a provincial appellate court dissents on the application of a legal standard that uh, triggers the right to appeal under Section 691 Sub 1 Sub A of the Criminal Code. There's, a, there's another issue I'd like either you or your colleague to touch on is um, if the rulings were erroneous, um, and, and let me cut more to the chase, if the ruling regarding the gun, the second ruling was erroneous, um, did that lead to a miscarriage of justice? Uh, thank you, Justice. In, in your own good time. Uh, in your own good time. You don't have to address it right now, whatever works for you. Thank you, Justice Brown. I'll address it now because I think it's That's an, an appeal management point. thing, um, not an admissibility ruling. Right. Uh, Justice uh, below, uh, Justice Pachaco um, did address the question of the proviso and whether or not um, the exclusion of the evidence resulted in a miscarriage of justice. And he said uh, that the Crown did not invoke the proviso below and that uh, for good reason, because if, if this was a, a central component of uh, the trial counsel's attack on the credibility of the central witness in the case against them, uh, and that an admissibility error that relates to such a central plank in an attack against the witnesses, the witness whose credibility is the central issue in the trial, could only rarely be upheld uh, under the proviso, and that certainly not in this case. Um, so that would be my submission on the proviso, and I would simply ask the court to adopt Justice Pachaco's analysis in that regard. Well, Justice Pachaco saw four errors. If I were just to see one error, that one I pointed out to you. Does that change your submission? Uh, it does not. I say that's the most serious of the four errors. Um, it, it, that error relates to specifically uh, the, 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 the capacity of trial counsel to advance the central component of their theory that this witness is prepared to lie under oath to protect his friend. That's what he did at the preliminary inquiry and that's what we say he did at trial. And the, the admissibility error with respect to ruling number two um, is specifically preventing trial counsel from advancing that theory by putting to that witness um, that this failure, to, uh, this failure to recall who dropped the gun in front of him um, and who picked it up afterwards uh, was in fact a, a feigned failure and, uh, and was a, a concoction in order to protect his friend, the co-accused Serrano, is, a, is a, a, a very important piece of evidence, and that keeping that from the jury uh, was a significant impairment uh, of the ability to cross-examine this, this critical witness. So, so I say that's the most important um, of the four errors, and uh, even if that's the only error this court's prepared to find, then, uh, then the proviso shouldn't apply to save the conviction in, in light of that error. Uh, and I'd invite uh, Justice Brown, I'm sure you've read the transcripts carefully, but I'd invite you to read the way that that evidence unfolds at the preliminary inquiry closely because he's, he's, very, he's very careful not to identify his friend, Mr. Mateo Asensio. He's very clearly saying at the preliminary inquiry to the Crown, uh, I, my focus was on the person 
um, who was threatening me, the person I had a problem with, who's alleged to be Mr. Semeniego. Uh, and the Crown's almost cross-examining him. And there's even one point where he almost slips and says, um, that, well, who was around you at the time? Well, it was the two gentlemen, Mr. Semeniego and Mr. Serrano. Um, and, uh, and who picked up the gun? Well, I don't know who picked up the gun because my focus was on, um, on the guy who I had a problem with. And so the sort of like implication is that it was the other guy. And then the Crown seizes on that and says, well, would that have been the guy in the baseball cap? And he says, oh, I don't know. Like my focus was on the guy with the, um, who I had the problem with. So, so in my submission, that certainly was open to the defense to, it's an open inference on that record um, to have put to, the, to the, the security guard that he was lying to protect his friend. And in, in preventing that, uh, I say it's a serious error. Um, so uh, I'd like to, to draw a line in my submission between um, two components of the admissibility analysis and where the trial management power can fit in. And the first is when is the, is the threshold analysis of looking at whether or not evidence is relevant and material or subject to an exclusionary rule. Um, th this court well knows that the law says that that evidence is admissible subject to the residual discretion. And when we're in that first uh, uh, framework, I say trial management concerns have no, have no uh, place in the assessment, either of the relevance of the evidence or its materiality or uh, whether or not a, an exclusionary rule applies. And further, that on appellate review of those three questions, the standard is correctness, because either is evidence is relevant or it is not, either it is material or it is not, and either it is subject to an exclusionary rule or it is not. And, to, and for a trial judge to say, well, this may be, have some relevance, but I'm, I'm concerned about efficiency here, and so as a result, I'm going to exclude it, is to commit an error of law. Now, the residual discretion, when we're moving into the second component of that framework, and there's a balancing of probative value and prejudicial effect, uh, as we concede in our factum, that is a place where uh, the trial management power could have some relevance in assessing the prejudice. A question that's already been asked, for example, could diminish in probative value. Cumulative evidence that goes to the same issue might start to diminish in probative value, and the prejudicial effect might start to mount in terms of distraction to the jury from their core task. Um, so in those circumstances, we agree that the trial management power could have some impact on the balancing assessment that comes at the end. Uh, but it, it would be an exceptional case when it's defense-led evidence, because of course, for defense-led evidence, the right to make full answer in defense means that for it to be excluded under the residual discretion, uh, probative value has to be substantially outweighed by pre prejudicial effect. Um, but also, uh, uh, that the, the, the final point I'd like to make about that is simply that uh, that's not what the trial judge relied on here. The trial judge didn't say, well, I've, I've assessed the probative value of this evidence against its prejudicial effect, and I'm not satisfied. Um, that, uh, that it's substantially, or I'm satisfied that prejudice substantially outweighs the probative value. What happened here was the trial judge made a series of rulings really on, on relevance or, or, the, or the presence of a, an exclusionary rule. And we say that Justice Pachaco was right, that these are questions of correctness. These are questions that engage the law of evidence and that the trial judge mistakenly applied that law. I guess um, I'm not sure that's entirely um, 
fair to the trial judge when you look at uh, the, the cocaine issue, number three. Um, clearly, the issue of prejudice to the uh, co-accused was raised. Um, the issue of discreditable conduct was looked at in the context of, of the agreement not to raise discreditable conduct of the other co-accused. And clearly, um, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure, I think that the, that the transcript doesn't really bear out your comment that uh, she wasn't relying on uh, the prejudicial nature of the, uh, of the evidence in that ruling. I'm giving you a chance to answer that. Thank you for raising that concern, uh, Justice Karakatsanis. I, I read the transcript differently. Um, certainly, uh, counsel for the co-accused raised a very vigorous objection um, when that question was put to Mr. Mateo Asensio, and that part of that objection was the prejudice to her client, as one might expect. I mean, it's, it's her client's um, character that's being drawn into issue here. Um, but when one reads the transcript of the exchange between the parties and what the trial judge actually concluded about, um, about why this evidence wouldn't go in at the end of the day, the trial judge grounded uh, her analysis in, in relevance. Um, she said that this, this evidence isn't relevant to the charge that's on the indictment. He's charged with a gun offense, and he's not charged with a drug offense. Uh, and also in speculation that this evidence uh, had no basis in the brief exchange that we see uh, in the video, uh, nor, uh, nor in the, the fact that Mr. Serrano was, was arrested in possession of cocaine by police upon shortly after he discarded the gun. And... Um, I say when we read the record, uh, we can see that what the trial judge is doing is saying, I'm not persuaded this evidence is relevant to any issue the jury has to decide. Well, when I, read, when I read the record, um, I'm, I must say I'm unclear about the defense conduct's framing of that relevance. I mean, Justice Pachoco um, clearly sets out relevant and probative lines of inquiry. Uh, that, that, that this could have been applied to, but there, there, are, there, there are arguments that defense counsel didn't advance. I mean, how, how far is a trial judge, if at all, supposed to probe with defense counsel matters of relevance and, and probative versus prejudicial value when defense counsel hasn't clearly laid that out in their submission? Isn't that just sort of the end of it? It's irrelevant? Uh, Justice Brown, uh, the, the, the first thing I'll say uh, is that uh, the, the, a trial judge is obliged when undertaking the balancing analysis, uh, this court has made clear, to identify specifically the probative value, to identify specifically the prejudicial effect, and then to engage in the balancing uh, well, Where are they assessment. supposed to identify that? They are, can, can they not take their cues from counsel on that? And if counsel doesn't, doesn't meet the standard, then that's it. I mean, the trial judge isn't there to make the case for defense counsel, or for the Crown, for that matter. Correct. Uh, the tr and trial judges are entitled to rely on the assistance of counsel before them to help identify the probative value uh, and the prejudicial effect of a, of a given piece of evidence. Um, and certainly, I, well, I'll be the first one to concede that trial counsel could have been more helpful um, in this particular case. 
Well, I've got you. Um, I'm really puzzled about the, uh, what the trial judge was supposed to do on the, um, on, on, on the, in, the, the, this inconsistency or supposed inconsistency about whether the security guard was scared um, at all times or just after the gun was dropped. Right, so defense counsel appears to concede that the question was misleading because she says, oh, well, this can be addressed in, in, in re-exam. Right. Uh, but Serrano's counsel says, well, there's a, there's a, there's a problem. Or, or rather, she also says there's a problem. There's a statement that contains other prejudicial information about a prior confrontation with the security guard. So the trial judges issues a mid trial instruction. Now the criticism at the dissent at the Court of Appeal is, aha, right, that, that prior statement was never proved, which of course is true, although arguably um, a moment later um, defense counsel puts, uh, effectively adduces it by referring to one portion of a statement and another portion of a statement. But putting that aside, what was the trial judge to do in that situation? Well, the, the point Justice Pachaco is making and the point with which we agree on appeal is simply that it's for the, the jury to make sense of whether or not a prior uh, statement is in fact consistent or not. Um, and simply advising the jury that there is a consistency in a prior statement isn't the appropriate procedure. And in particular, in this case, but there's this was, an internal This was a misleading exchange. This was, this was a misleading exchange. And as I say, even defense counsel concedes, oh, well, yeah, I guess there's something to address in, in re-exam but we don't have to address it now. Why wasn't the trial judge, um, I mean, this wasn't bolstering the security guard's um, credibility, it was, it was correcting a misleading exchange. This Correct. is a jury uh, trial. In my submission, uh, when a trial judge is confronted with this kind of question, this, this is a question I should say that, that is distinct. The fourth of the rulings is distinct from the first three rulings. The first three rulings very clearly engage questions of admissibility and are rulings on, uh, that engage issues of relevance and issues of, of the presence or absence of exclusionary rules. The fourth ruling is a procedural ruling, a ruling about how evidence is that everyone agrees is going to be presented should be presented. Um, and so um, the, it, it presents different kinds Sounds of Sounds like trial management. Than, just, but can I ask you this? What do you do with the trial judge's statement? I'm looking at a hun page 100 or, and 101, which says, don't, don't forget, this is not evidence. You were using that to test his credibility. Uh, you were using it to test his evidence. So essentially, I just need to correct the impression that was left with the jury. What do you say about that point? So I, I agree that the, the uh, Justice Karakatsanis, that the, that the jury did uh, need to have that impression corrected. When trial counsel confronted the security guard on the specific statement that he told, and he specifically asked, did you tell, you know, when he was speaking to the police officer, um, were you afraid at any part in this transaction? He says, no, I wasn't. I was calm and I was focused. Um, and then later on, there's, a, there's a, an inconsistency within the statement when he says, actually, yes, I was afraid because of the prior, the prior threat. Um, what the, 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 the point that's being made, I think, by Justice Pachaco in dissent is simply that the, the, that internal inconsistency 
might have um, been something that trial counsel could have confronted the security guard with. Now, trial counsel didn't propose that. This is a problem put to me by Justice Brown and another of the grounds of appeal. Um, and trial counsel didn't propose that. But as, as Justice Pachaco says, uh, everyone has the duty to ensure that the appropriate procedures are followed. Uh, and in, in the facts of this case, it, it led to the, the jury being told that a prior statement was consistent when that was, in fact, their responsibility to decide. And that's, that's particularly aggravated by the second component of, uh, of, the, of the, fourth, the fourth error that uh, Justice Pachaco identifies, um, which is when in reexamination, the Crown attorney says, well, you know, sir, is, didn't in fact you identify at the preliminary inquiry that uh, this person was your friend? And he says, yes, I did. Um, and, and in fact saying, isn't, isn't your testimony today consistent with that of the preliminary inquiry? When that's not uh, an accurate uh, reflection of the record of the preliminary inquiry, when um, uh, the, the, the witness, Mr. Mateo Asensio, only identifies um, uh, Mr. Serrano as his friend after two days of cross-examination where he says he can't remember anything, and then finally is told, listen, sir, identity's not an issue, okay? You understand that? And that's when suddenly some evidence about identification comes out from the witness. So, so those two errors when read together, we say, um, represent the procedural error that Justice Pachaco was concerned with. And, and in fact, we say we're a problem below. But I, I do want to emphasize that the, it's a different character, different kind of problem than the problem in the first three rulings, which are straightforward uh, problems of admissibility uh, and relevance. Um, justices, th that's, those are the submissions that I wanted to emphasize uh, on uh, on the, the the role of the trial management power in the admissibility analysis uh, and on the particular errors in the court below. Uh, subject to any further questions, I'd like to turn the matters over to my friend, uh, my colleague, Ms. Lapo Hung, uh, to make submissions on the issue of jurisdiction. Very well, thank you. Good morning, Justices. Um, in, in our submission, this court's decision in Benaria speaks directly to this court's jurisdiction to hear this appeal. Writing for the court, Justice Arbor held that a question of law under Section 691A of the Criminal Code includes the application of a legal standard uh, to a set of facts. We submit to you in the case before you the disagreement between the majority and the dissent um, in this case was on the application of a legal standard. Um, Justice Bonato characterized the four impute rulings as trial management decisions within the, the discretion of the trial judge and Justice Pichalco wrote that the trial management power, as important as it is, is constrained by the rules of admissibility. The inquiry for appellate access should avoid fine distinctions between pure and mixed questions of law or fact. Um, rather, a broad purposive approach is required. As a threshold jurisdictional issue of appellate access, the application of a legal standard is enough to make the question a question of law. It is of no import to suggest that it is not a pure question of law or that it is not a question of law alone. And that's from Benarius. Um, and, and I think it's important to note that the, the case that the Crown relies on, uh, Fanjoy, um, was not a jurisdictional threshold issue. Um, so in, in our submission, it doesn't really help this court determining appellate access under Section 691.1. And I submit that ultimately uh, in Fanjoy, this court uh, held that there was a miscarriage of justice, and certainly I, I, we submit that if 
Spanjoy was decided today, uh, this court would have permitted appellate access based on the fact that uh, the proviso was applied and there was a miscarriage of justice ultimately uh, as well. And so uh, our submission is that this court um, in Benarius, Yebes, Jolivi has rejected the view that mixed questions involving the question of a legal standard um, uh, to a set of facts do not amount to a question of law. And so our submission is that you should uh, reject the Crown's narrow interpretation uh, of appellate access and submit that uh, there is appellate access under Section 691A. Uh, Subject to those, any questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Strizos. Yes, Chief Justice, Justices, good morning. I have one proposition that I respectfully ask this court to accept. It is this, the trial management power ends where the rules of evidence begin. And I ask you to accept this proposition because the rules of evidence and the trial management powers serve fundamentally different purposes and objectives in our criminal justice system. First, the purpose of the trial management power is to control how the litigants act during the trial. Its objective is to achieve efficiency in the trial of itself. No case is an island. Second, the purpose of the rules of evidence are to ensure fair, reliable fact-finding. Their objective is to the extent possible to protect the rectitude of the result. And many rules, of course, have efficiency built into them in their operation and application. But efficiency, respectfully, in that situation is a byproduct. And it's my submission that by recommend, uh, recognizing these fundamental differences in purpose and objective, both powers can be exercised within their proper bounds consistently and fairly. My next point is that this approach that I suggest to the court by recognizing the differing purposes and objectives may assist the court in determining what divided the court below. In a nutshell, the fundamental concern of the Criminal Lawyers Association is that the trial management power should not result in the misapplication or non-application of a rule of evidence which seems to be at the root of the dispute below between the majority and the dissenting judge. In short, I submit to you respectfully by res recognizing the differing objectives and purposes between these two different types of judicial powers, the court will ensure that they are exercised fairly and consistently and that they can work together and in the vast majority of cases, they will and they must. But it's my respectful submission to you that the trial management power is not a license to uphold wrong decisions on evidence law. And finally, one way to think about this case as you approach it, I set it out in our factum at paragraph 17, 
is that the trial management power is really not about outcomes. That work is done by the application of the rules of evidence and substantive law. Trial management, no doubt, complements the orderly and consistent application of the rules of evidence and substantive law. By focusing on the issues that need ad evidentiary rulings, thereby enhancing, respectfully, the rectitude of the result in the first instance. And that explains the differing standards of evidentiary appellate review. On an evidentiary ruling, a court is assessing whether there was an error in principle that called into question the correctness or reliability or rectitude of the verdict, and that was Justice Pachaco's concern. However, when an appellate court reviews a trial management ruling, the exercise is fundamentally different because of the different purpose and objective. In that situation, the focus is on whether the exercise of that discretionary power affected trial fairness and not necessarily the rectitude of the result. In conclusion, it's my respectful submission to the extent that this court presents an opportunity to stake out the differing purposes and objectives of the trial management power and the rules of evidence, this framework that I respectfully urge upon the court may assist you in this area of law. Those are my respectful submissions. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Mr. Craig Harper. Good morning, Chief Justice and Chief Justices. In the Crown submission, this is a case about a trial judge's proper exercise of her discretion to intervene and prevent misleading or inaccurate cross-examination. And in this case, in the Crown submission, that's what the trial judge did. She properly intervened to prevent misleading and or inaccurate cross-examination of the witness that both the majority and the dissent found wanting. And the exercise of her discretion in this area is a well-established authority that this court and other appellate courts have clearly delineated. But now, if, 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 if a trial judge, and it's been a heck of a long time since I've been a trial judge, but I think I can remember it. Um, if a trial judge says, you know, this is irrelevant, or this is not sufficiently probative, but it's prejudicial, and it's really tangential, this whole thing, or you haven't laid the proper foundation to put a question of that nature, is that an exercise of trial management, or is that simply the application of the ordinary rules of evidence? Well, in the course of cross-examination, Justice Rowe, as it occurred in this case in my submission, it often is an overlap in that exercise, because what the trial judge is required to do in my submission is to ensure that there's an accurate record put to a witness in cross-examination. And when there are issues with the accuracy of that, it's up to the trial judge to ask counsel to delineate the basis of the relevance. And it's the obligation of counsel in this back and forth to ensure that the trial judge has the proper uh, basis for determining relevance. And as occurred in this case, the trial judge uh, did ask counsel uh, counsel provided a basis that did not establish in the Crown submission relevance right. and made a ruling on that basis. Trial management, or whether that's just the ordinary rules of evidence, 
And, and, and I want to put this in a certain context. Um, uh, Justice Rosenberg, you know, one of the most absolutely distinguished criminal jurists in, in Canada's Certainly. history, in Felderhoff, when he described uh, trial management, he, he, he listed several examples. It wasn't an, uh, an exhaustive list, but I'll just give it to you quickly. Place reasonable limits on oral submissions. Direct submissions be made in writing. Require an offer of proof before embarking on a lengthy voir dire. Defer rulings. Direct the manner in which a voir dire is conducted. And, and in exceptional cases, direct the order in which evidence is called. All of those are intuitively trial management in the way that I think the Criminal Lawyers Association has addressed it. The conduct of an efficient trial as opposed to what seems to me to be a kind of a mislabeling here, and, I, and I'll come to my point, forgive me for chewing into your time, Not a mislabeling of, of, of the exercise of trial authority for what could more accurately be characterized as evidentiary rulings pursuant to the laws of evidence by the trial judge. I would agree with that. Now, first, I would just like to step back and say that Justice Rosenberg did delineate those powers. However, in the case of Felderhoff, as I'm sure this court is aware, it was the result of a very lengthy, acrimonious trial where there were all sorts of procedural issues. But pointedly, Justice Rosenberg said this is not uh, the this list is not exhaustive. But more to your point, Justice Rowe. Although we're talking about trial management, the power that is exercised by the trial judge in this case is a well-established power. It is a power to ensure that counsel has put to the witness a proper uh, record upon which they can cross-examine them on a, lie, a material issue in the case. So sometimes that will come down to ultimately making a ruling as to relevancy, but part of this power also requires the trial judge, especially when there are valid objections, to sort out what the evidentiary record is. And some of that is fact-finding, Justice Rowe. It's what, and this is a good example, this case is a good example. Uh, Justice Brown raised the whole issue about uh, the prior inconsistent statement uh, allegation that the witness may have uh, said he was not scared at one part of his statement, but was scared at another. In order to to determine that question, whether or not that was a fair or accurate uh, precy of what he told the officer that he wasn't scared, trial judge has to see and look at the, the actual statement. She has to uh, satisfy herself that there is a factual basis to make that argument. In this case, she found that there wasn't. So it is partly a legal ruling, but it's also a fact-finding mission uh, in a case where there's confusion, where there's misleading or inaccurate questioning on a record. And keep in mind, Justice Rowe, hearken back to your days as a trial judge. You are sitting there without um, a full record before you. You are reliant on counsel to provide you a proper record before you can make a ruling. You cannot make a ruling about admissibility or even relevancy until you have a proper record. That's a fact-finding Mr. Harper, sorry to interrupt. How would you, uh, how would you categorize uh, ruling number two? Uh, would you say that uh, it is a ruling that uh, the trial judge was uh, entitled to make uh, based on her 
management power, or would you say that it is an evidentiary ruling? I would suggest, I just want to be clear about this when we're talking about evidentiary ruling, Justice Cote. It's an evidentiary ruling in this sense, in that when trial counsel put to uh, the witness a very broad statement, which uh, the trial judge ultimately found to be misleading, she, uh, objections were made, and she had to make a factual finding about what the actual record was about what the uh, witness had testified to at the preliminary inquiry. So she's making a factual finding, and then she's making a ruling as to whether or not it's relevant or accurate. And so uh, this is a point that I made in response to my friend, Mr. Strezos, that this particular power, although we're doing it under the modern day umbrella of, um, of trial management is a very established power. As Fanjoy says, it's mixed fact and law. And in this case, the trial judge first made a factual finding and said it was inaccurate and asked her uh, to uh, reframe the question. In fact, trial counsel comes back to it as a memory issue. This was not ultimately, and this is part of the problem with records like this and the problem that trial judges face. Although we talk about it as trial management, ultimately the trial judge is here to ensure that a fair record is put to uh, the witness to ensure that uh, when they're answering a question, it's on a proper record because by definition, that's the only way you ensure uh, proper fact finding. So in answer to your question, it is a mixed question. She has to make factual findings in the course of the cross-examination uh, based upon submissions of counsel. And then she determines whether or not the question itself can be put because it's not, in this case, it was not accurate. It is a very broad question to say, you didn't tell us at the prelim what you're telling us here today. That's a factual finding that that's not what the record was. She did not say that she, he couldn't, uh, that she did not shut down trial counsel to challenge him on his memory or other in potential inconsistencies. It was a factual finding she made that this was an inaccurate yeah. record placed before the, the but witness. The, as Justice Pachoco said, later evidence does not eradicate earlier evidence. Uh, it was clear at the beginning, the first testimony at the preliminary inquiry. Uh, there was an inconsistency with what uh, the witness said after. So, well, uh, sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt Justice Cote. No, no, go ahead. As a, as a base proposition, that's correct. But the question isn't what the general principles of evidence uh, of relevancy are when it comes to prior inconsistent statements. The question is what is counsel alleging to a witness at that point in time on the record. So at that point in time, uh, trial counsel puts before the witness uh, a line, uh, lines from the preliminary inquiry about whether or not he saw the gun. And the question that she asked was, so sir, my question is to you, why did you not tell what you're telling us today or yesterday? And trial counsel at the preliminary inquiry gets uh, knew that the witness had testified at the prelim that he had told the police the truth. And there's a reference to that in the condensed book at tab 5G. He is asked in chief whether or not what he told the police was 
true? He said, yes, it was. As you can see from the statement, he clearly identifies the roles of the two individuals, Mr. Samaniego and the co-accused, Mr. Serrano. And in his statement, he clearly told uh, the police that the appellant had the gun and passed it to the co-accused who dropped it. So that record was adopted for its truth at the preliminary inquiry. So his evidence was also in its entirety uh, that the appellant had the gun, passed it to his friend, the co-accused, who ultimately dropped it. The question that was asked was a very broad implication that he had somehow not said that. That was a proper objection. If the question had been different and had been differently phrased, then maybe there would be a point. And this brings me back to a point uh, that I, I've probably made ad nauseum at this point. There is an obligation on counsel to properly frame their questions and properly provide assistance to a trial judge. I agree with the you. I, I agree with you. But let's let your, your time's limited, so I'm going to cut to the chase here. I agree with you sure. on, on that. There's obviously that obligation. Um, but let's say that. Uh, that I, I, I think counsel, uh, let's just say for sake of argument that I think counsel did frame the issue here, sort of lack of memory then, revival now, and, and so it's clearly suggestive of an inconsistency on this point that Justice Cote's raised with you. Um, so we have an error. What do we do with it? If it is a legal error, I would, and it's the only, uh, I would submit that the proviso can be applied. I and, yet you haven't asked you, and yet you haven't asked us to apply it. So what do we do with that? Well, on your finding, uh, if you're just saying that there's the one error, I would submit that the proviso could be applied. As this court knows, um, your authority is only triggered if uh, the request is made. Um, but if you are saying that it does, uh, that is an error. I would submit that the proviso could be applied. Yeah, um, so it's, it is. It is just one error, assuming that it is just that, and maybe it's not. But your friend um, stresses not the quantity, but the quality of the error. That this really goes to the central point in the issue. Um, and and uh, what do you say to that? I would submit, Justice Brown, that counsel was able to get to the issue, uh, which was essentially a bias on the part of the witness towards the co-accused and that he was doing what he could to protect the co-accused. She was able to ask questions in regards to his memory. She was able to underline before the jury the fact that um, the witness and the co-accused were friends. Uh, they were good friends. They socialized together. That, and she was able to go to the jury with that theory that what has happened is that this witness who uh, through his memory loss and through his friendship is somehow trying to uh, provide a less inculpatory view of the co-accused. So I would submit on the record before you that that was, uh, was done effectively and that was before the jury and that ultimately uh, if there was an error that it uh, would not have affected the result. So can I, I just want to make sure I understand your position clearly. With respect to that um, second um, um, impugned um, ruling, yes, um, your position is that if the question had been, did you say two different things at the preliminary uh, inquiry, then that should have been allowed. 
but that in this case you're saying there was a factual determination or the nature of the question was, did you say something different ultimately at the preliminary inquiry as opposed to today? Is, is that, did I understand your submission correctly? I think, I think that the, the council could have raised any number of questions, Justice Carrick could send us, but the, the, the issue is what the judge was dealing with, not what could have been asked. Yes. And what was put to her and her ruling is based upon what the question was against the record of the prelim. Right, but you're asking us to interpret that question or to interpret what the judge did with that question is as a matter of fact, to, to see that question as trying to juxtapose consistent statement as between the prelim and trial and not different statements at the prelim. No, she made a factual finding as to what was implied in that question based upon what was provided to her. And okay. that's the ruling that she okay. made. Thank you. I think it would be <clears throat> hard to suggest that the jury would have been terribly misled by all this because the counsel for the appellant puts the problem to the juries uh, through cross-examination squarely. And, and then at volume three, page 94 and five, you get the question being put, the reason you put the gun to Mr. Samiego's possession is because your friend, your true friend, close friend, dropped the gun in front of you and you want an explanation for that for yourself and for others as to how he got the gun. Answer, I don't agree. Weren't you shocked that your close friend took the gun into the club? Maybe if he didn't grab it, I wouldn't be here talking to you or talking to anybody. Again, you're trying to make Mr. Serrano look saintly. The court, okay, you know, part of this will be for your submissions, not for him right now. I mean, the, the effect of that is save some stuff for argument, but the basic premise, the basic concern, the basic inconsistency and the base of motive for the inconsistency is there. The jury has this, and I can't imagine it would have been lost on them. I would agree with that, Justice uh, Maldaver, that ultimately counsel wrapped up her cross-examination with highlighting that point. Um, she put through her cross-examination, and she established at the, as she tried to establish at the prelim, that um, the witness was a friend of the co-accused, that he was doing all of this you know, on the basis of um, friendship. Um, I think she may have used the word savior at one point or angel. Uh, this is all clearly before the jury. I, I, agree with you. I agree with you. I think the theory, the defense theory that the security guard is supporting his pal, Serrano, is clearly before the jury. Yes. Um, but, and I'm really struggling on this point, so I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I Not at all. have to. The problem that I have is that the inconsistency itself, which would have been supportive of that theory, supportive of that theory, was not before the jury. Because <clears throat> let's just accept hypothetically of an error by the trial judge. I would submit that that was not put before the jury if it was to be put before the jury uh, because counsel saw fit to conduct her cross-examination as she did. And the question that you're referring to, that counsel put to her, embedded in uh, a 
much more broadly worded assertion that he was lying at large, and that's what the trial judge had to deal with. And in fairness, the trial judge, Justice Brown, it's what she, it's the record that she's working with at that point in time with the assistance of counsel. It is not after the fact when all of the evidence has been put before the jury and she has time for detached reflection. So within the context of this case, that was an appropriate ruling. Counsel was allowed to attack the whole issue of memory and how it had differed uh, from the prelim and uh, asking questions about whether or not his memory was, uh, he had specific memory problems related to the case or general memory problems, but she was able to uh, address this issue in her continuing cross-examination. The ruling that is an issue was appropriately made on the record before her on the submissions that were made. And uh, trial counsel was um, agreed that she uh, that the prelim included his evidence that he had adopted as the truth, that he had seen uh, Mr. Samaniego with the gun and then passed it to Mr. Serrano. And when she attempted to explain its relevance, she referred to it as the witness's memory. So that is the theory that was put to the judge in this case, and that's what she ruled upon. And in fairness to trial judges, they rule upon what's before them, not what hypothetically could have been argued uh, before them. I don't know if that assists you, Justice Brown. I am mindful of my time. I'm mindful of um, your time too, so. so uh. <laughs> although, although, you know, it ain't real complicated just to put the question, the relevance of the question. You said one thing then, you said another thing later. How come you said two different things at different times? You know, how can we rely on your other testimony, etc.? I mean, it's connecting the dots on that one is, seems to me to be not a big exercise on the trial judge's part. Well, again, Justice Rowan, I'm just going to be repeating my answer to Justice Brown. The trial judge was uh, provided with a record of what he said at the prelim. The question was phrased in such a way, and again, as a trial, former trial judge, you appreciate this. The trial judge is in the midst of the trial. She is aware of the issues. She is aware of the to and fro. And so when she hears that question, she interpreted it as a general implication of lying as she was entitled to do. And counsel says memory, and she's entitled to rely upon that. And on the basis of what was put to her by counsel, she was entitled to make that ruling, I would submit. And um, I can't, you know, provide a different answer because ultimately this is a fact-specific situation that ultimately did not impede the defense and in, uh, in its attack on the witness. And so are you suggesting then that had defense counsel in that exchange said, I'm putting this forward to challenge the witness in terms of either bias or credibility, that the evidentiary ruling uh, would have been different? It could have been, but again, it would have depend 
any ruling can be different, Justice Martin, depending on how it is framed by counsel. And ultimately, the trial judge is uh, required to make a ruling based upon how it's framed and how it's expressed and taking into account what other factual issues are at play in the trial. If I can just briefly move to the issue uh, raised by my friend, Mr. Strezos, it's the Crown's position that the intervener uh, and the Crown are at item on the basic premise that evidence that tends to distort truth-seeking at a trial or to hinder reliable fact-finding should not be admitted. And an inaccurately stated uh, piece of evidence in a confusing cross-examination is not admissible because it distorts the truth-seeking function of the trial and it hinders reliable fact-finding. And I would, uh, I appreciate that my friend had spent a great deal of thoughtful effort on the rationale governing the rules of evidence, but the intervener is not, in my submission, taking any issue with the long-established right that recognized in this court and others, this court and Little, but Murray, Polanco, and others in, in the, uh, this province's Court of Appeal, that the trial judges have an undisputed right to exercise his or her discretion to ensure that cross-examination is done fairly and on a proper record. And I don't take the uh, my friend as either contesting this or really addressing this consistent line of authority from this court and others, that trial judges have a discretion to intervene in cross-examination that is misleading, misrepresentative, confusing, abusive, or repetitive. And only three decisions of this court need to be highlighted that are undisputed. Fanjoy, which is before you in the condensed book at tab 3B. Um, Dewey, this court actually said that even tangentially relevant evidence can be excluded in cross-examination by the defense. Um, in Little, uh, this court stated that a trial judge can even require counsel to enter into a voir dire on contested evidence on cross-examination. And my friend states that there's a growing trend of merging trial management and evidentiary rulings, but I would submit that this has not been demonstrated, that this is simply an exercise of an age-old um, authority that is necessary to ensure accurate fact-finding. And there is a growing trend, as demonstrated by this court's pronouncements in Jordan and Cody, to encourage judges to ensure the efficient use of time by eliminating wasteful efforts uh, and issues that distort the basic function of a trial, the search for the truth. And I would submit that ultimately the position is a false dichotomy. The trial judge uh, in this realm is not always exercising a purely evidentiary function or a trial management function. In many cases, uh, and this is one, uh, it is a merging of factual findings and uh, rulings as to what is permissible. And the discretion to limit cross-examination to relevant issues serves exactly the same function as the evidentiary rules. I would also note briefly uh, that my friend relies upon the decision in Bordos. I note that Bordos was decided on an issue not before the court, the case management powers under 551.3 sub 1D, which is a scheduling power, and the court still reined in cross-examination. And I also note the case management powers in the code at sub G include a power to rule on admissibility. Now, dealing with the issue of Mr. jurisdiction. Mr. Harper, just before you yes. go on, I just want to be clear about this number two point, the gun. Yes. 
do I have it right that <clears throat> the question that the defense counsel put was why he was not telling the jury the same story at trial as, as he said at the preliminary. Yes. That's the way it was put. That's correct. And, and of course, um, <laughs> and, and that's the basis upon which, if I understand it, uh, she wanted to be able to, um, I don't know, go further or whatever or use it. And that is kind of misleading. I mean, because we know that he did say what he's saying at trial at the preliminary, albeit after he has his memory refreshed. So I just, is, that, is that your point here, that trial judges are not to be mind readers? They're, they react to submissions that are made to them. And quite frankly, while there's no question that Justice Pachoco's readings are probably a model and a textbook for you know, evidentiary rulings that, that could be made. You, you can't just in the common quiet of a court of appeal sort of say, ah, trial judge, you should have known that the real reason behind this was to make an important credibility finding because the question that was put was really quite misleading. I think that's your point, but I just want to be clear about this. That's exactly my point, and that was the point raised by counsel at trial, that the question was so broad that it did not accurately reflect what he said, and that uh, he, he's told uh, the court that what he told the police was the truth, that a statement was admitted for uh, as past recollection recorded, so it was his evidence. And that was the factual matrix that the trial judge had to uh, deal with. And I note, um, at the risk of being facetious, that although trial judges are required to have many qualities, clairvoyance is not one of them. But, but the okay, but since we're down in the weeds here, since we've decided to be very granular, what's wrong with defense counsel saying, you said something different, didn't you, before? Yes. No further questions. Redirect. Now, is it not also true witness on the redirect that you corrected your statement and you said the following? That's true. Matter cleared up. I mean, as opposed to bringing down the axe and saying you can't even get into the prior inconsistency. But that's not the record, and that's not the basis upon which it was argued. It wasn't that counsel was suggesting that she was building up to the point that uh, Justice uh, Pachaco made in dissent. She said it went to his memory. And again, back to the original point, Justice Rowe, the issue is what a trial judge is dealing with before her at that point in time. It is not what may have been stated after months of detached reflection, it's not going to be uh, where you have a chance to think through all the permutations of it against the record as a whole. So in um, that is what she was dealt, uh, that is the question and the submissions that she dealt with, that is the ruling upon which she made it and therefore uh, in my submission it was correctly made. I'm cognizant of my time, I will simply rely upon my uh, submissions in the factum for the jurisdictional question.
Very well. Thank you very much. Any reply, uh, Mr. Rudnicki? Thank you, Chief Justice. Yes, I'd like to make uh, three brief points in reply. First, on the issue of what trial counsel said about ruling number two. It was not that she said this simply goes to his memory. What she said specifically, and this is in the condensed book at page 47, my condensed book, is that surely I can challenge him on his lack of memory he had at that time and the revival of that memory now. What she's saying is, surely I can challenge him on a prior inconsistency. And the trial judge says, well, counsel, that's not an inconsistency. And in our submission, that what the trial judge said was wrong. The second point I'd like to make is that the right to full answer in defense does not entail the right to put one's position before the jury. Surely it's true that trial counsel in this case had the opportunity to put her position before the jury. The right to full answer in defense involves the right to marshal all relevant and material evidence, not subject to an exclusionary rule and whose probative value is not substantially outweighed by its prejudicial effect. That's the problem we say uh, is involved in this case. And finally, just on the application of the proviso when it comes to questions of credibility, I can do no better than point this court to its own decision in the Queen and Little from 2004. Mm -hmm when the issue uh, was the curtailing of cross-examination uh, on the erroneous basis that it lacked a good faith basis. And on the issue of the proviso, this court held as follows. The Court of Appeal, this is at paragraph 69 to 71. The Ontario Court of Appeal recognized that the importance of cross-examination becomes even more critical when credibility is the central issue in the trial. In a case where the guilt or the innocence of the accused largely turned on credibility, it was a serious matter to limit the accused of his substantial right to fully cross-examine the principal crown witness. It would not be appropriate in the circumstances to invoke or apply the, the curative proviso. The Manitoba Court of Appeal echoed these sentiments in the Queen and Wallach. Cross-examination is a most powerful weapon of the defense, particularly when the entire case turns on the credibility of witnesses. An accused in a criminal case has the right of cross-examination in the fullest and widest sense of the word as long as he does not abuse that right. Any improper interference with the right is an error which will result in the conviction being quashed. It follows uh, that where, as here, a trial judge improperly interfered with an accused's right to cross-examination, infused a mistrial chill into the proceedings, and placed conditions on a legitimate line of questioning that forfeited the accused's statutory right to address the jury last, those issues aren't at issue here, but 69 to 70 certainly are. A substantial wrong has occurred and an unfair trial has resulted. The bottom line here is that the accused has the right to challenge their accuser and to marshal relevant evidence in that regard. And where, as here, that evidence was improperly limited, a new trial should follow. Thank you, those are my submissions. Chief Justice, could I just ask yes, a go ahead, question? Please. I'm, just, I'm just wondering, is Mr. Samaniego still in custody or has he reached statutory release at this point? He has been released, Justice Brown. Thank you. All right, thank you. Thank you to uh, counsel for your submissions. The court will take the case under advisement. Thank you.